So I've been having lots of discussions about amygdalas lately. Do you remember? Was it Fort Gravy? I started talking about amygdalas. And you said you were going to use them on Valentine instead of hearts on Valentine's. It's an amygdala. Hmm? It's an amygdala. Amygdala is the, is the little thing in the back of your brain that stores sort of core memories. And when you're under stress, your amygdala will sort of do rapid pattern recognition and propose a behavior. So things like fight or flight or emotional, deep emotional attachments are all mediated by the amygdala. So when you really love someone, or I suppose hate someone, you would say that you have them in your amygdala which is slightly more accurate than saying you have them in your heart. Does that ring any bells? Okay. That's not a core memory for me. Mm. Fair point. Or a memory. I had a good talk with Papa on Thursday. He sent me this article by Mike Fisher, who was his pastor in India, who now works as an executive coach, as well as being a pastor. He used to be a furniture maker and a pastor, and now he's an executive coach as a pastor, which is probably better aligned and way more profitable. Yeah, what? Used to be what? Furniture maker. Like he oh. ran a furniture business. He's an American, moved to India, planted a church, ran a business. An extraordinary guy. And this was a brilliant article about a brain freeze, which I guess the technical term is amygdala hijack. Is that like your brain is chugging along and then the amygdala will detect a threat or something. And then it will hijack the rest of your brain and all your prefrontal cortex and everything else shuts down. Um, sometimes that's called the fight or flight. Uh, nowadays they call it the f fight, freeze, or flight. Um, and sometimes they use it to refer to other F words as well. Friend or foe recognition. Right, right, right. Yeah. So what's interesting, he said in the article that. Yeah, the. You, you're in trouble in the amygdala, just scream the F word and when he's in trouble. You know what's funny? I did a, uh, a YouTube episode about um, networking and I, I talked about cell groups and how, you know, you need to be able to feed, fund, form. And I, you know, I came up with like seven of these. And they just realized, you know, I built an entire episode around four letter F words and none of them were obscene. <laughs> It's actually an impressive achievement. Frog. Fund, form, find. Frog. Frog. I did not. No, if I worked frog in there, that would have been more impressive. I agree. Or was that the F word you've been referring to this whole time as frog? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's only F words you know, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, where was it? Oh, yeah. He says that the amygdala hijacks when we perceive something 
that is either uh, a reminder of past trauma or a threat to something we consider a pillar of our identity. So if you're um, a Republican who believes in personal freedom and a politician of the opposing party says something that um, denigrates or threatens that identity, your amygdala will be hijacked. That would be. It, it does. <laughs> it hijacks. It has been happening quite a bit lately, yeah. And vice versa. No, it was interesting when he shared that I said, you know, I think that's true. I'm not sure if those are two different things. Pillars of identity and past trauma. And past trauma. I've often said that, you know, in many ways civilization is a form of PTSD. As we condition children and immigrants, I suppose, that there are certain things that are done and not done. But actually, when I thought about it, I realized, actually, so what does... Society. Yeah, society, that's true. Yeah, if you have primitive societies, you'll have this... Uh, much more seamlessly than you do in the complex civilization. You familiar with the difference? Society and civilization? Society is the more general is the more general term. So if you have a tribe of hunter-gatherers, you know, you know, you know pre-civilization or like the Australian outback or the African bush, they have a society. They have a culture and language and traditions. But they're not really, but they, they max out around Dunbar's number, 150 people. That's how much the human brain can, um, the, the average human, untrained human brain, um, if you're in a community of about 100 or so people, you kind of know everybody, you know who you can trust and not trust, and you can treat them all as individuals. Once you get more than that, you lose track and you can have people who are, you know, deceptive or shirkers or whatever, and they can kind of hide. And so what you find is that military companies for thousands of years were about 100 people, 150, for a centurion, means leader of 100, that's because the unit was 100 people. Uh, Gore-Tex, the manufacturer, they have a rule that none of their factories or buildings have more than 150 people in them. And so if they need to do more, they'll just cookie cutter, create copies of that. And they have like a, a flat hierarchy. They have no particular job titles or managerial roles. It's a small enough community that everyone knows each other and knows who they can trust without needing the role. Once you get beyond that scale, you need the, the idea of abstract roles and you trust the role rather than the individual. What does Gore-Tex make? They make um, some sort of thermal fabric. So they were really big in the 90s for doing like, uh, I think, breathable outerwear. And so they had, you know, jackets. Why is it both. called Gore-Tex? Maybe the guy, there was a guy named Gore who invented it. I don't know. Who's Al Gore? Al Gore? The inventor of the algorithm? No. Um, the inventor of the internet, of the modern internet. He didn't write the protocols, but he passed the legislation that uh, allowed commercialization of the internet. Was he like a president or? Vice president. Oh, okay. 
there are some who would say he was the rightful president because he um, won the popular vote against George Bush and almost won Florida, or may have marginally won Florida. But, but um, Supreme Court decided in a contentious five to four vote that uh, Bush won for a complex series of reasons. There was a very close, uh, I mean, the best analysis said it came down to like a dozen votes one way or the other oh. in California. Why even count? Is that, you know, not yeah. important. It's not like this decides like the future of our country for the next four years. And you know, if Al Gore had been president during the 9-11 attacks, the world might have gone very differently. I mean, we thought to be back second hand to like to be back, your assist, assistant to like the guy beat you on the opposing political party. Like the original system. What do you mean? The original system was they would vote for president. The guy who got the most votes was president. The guy who got the second most votes was vice president. Yeah. Which now, meant your vice now, president was your deepest political rival. Yeah. And now it's like you, you campaign with a vice president. Mm -hmm. They have sidekicks now. Which is good for cohesion, bad for diversity. Huh? I mean, if you actually had your worst political enemy sitting next to you, you would have a greater diversity of views, but you have a lot less cohesive cabinet. The tension between individuating and connecting. Ah, so I was thinking about this. There's got to be a, a symmetry between identity formation and trauma. And, the, and they're both things that are stored by the amygdala. And it occurred to me, both of them are probably dissociative events. Have we talked about dissociation? A little bit. And... On this channel or like to me? Um, either. But one of my insights lately is that joy is a self-forgetting kind of experience right i think that's why you enjoy video games so much is that you're focused on your friends and the task you're not really focused on yourself and your feelings as opposed to say like songwriting which is more of an artistic task like your sister indulges in or writing love poems to the dogs and things like that. Slightly, I was slightly hurt. My, your sister used a cipher to write this very beautiful love poem, and it was telling me to tell the dogs how much she loved them. <laughs> it summarizes so much of our relationship. Um, uh, it's not my problem. Are you dissociating from that? Um, but anyway, so the idea is that joy is self-forgetfulness, and interestingly, trauma is too, right? It's sort of, um, this thing is so painful that I am going to shove that part of myself away from my conscious memory so it doesn't overwhelm me, but then like a monster in the basement, it keeps lurking up and, you know, tracking it in opportune times. And so that was an interesting idea that both joy and trauma are dissociative events. And we usually think of one as good and the other as evil. But in fact, addiction is basically 
joy gone viral. I've discovered that if I do this thing, it makes me feel better and I will keep doing that in a maladaptive way. You familiar with the term maladaptive? Yeah. yeah. I think we have had that on a previous episode. So, my next, um, I've told you about Wisdom app, right? No. Oh, oh uh, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah this random place, I can go on the random, random place on the internet and give people advice and they're ex- excited to hear it, which is potentially addictive for someone like me. Um, trying to. I need to put screen time. You know, we probably should. That's not a bad idea. Having some limits on that. Debated. Um, thank you for that ring. Um, so I was thinking about Ultron, I think I told you. Yeah. And it occurred to me, I came up with a... Um, what did Stark do wrong? What did Stark do wrong, right? And it's not so much what he did wrong, but how he um, was broken. Because, well, the first thing I realized was that I talked about generativity, right? And that this combination of individuating and connecting is what it means to be human. And the collective word for that is... Community. Well, a system that has a lot of uh, both individuation and connectivity is generative. Um, you know, like DNA. There's a lot of connectivity there, but there's lots of individuality, right? There's this... Uh, information carrying capacity because it has a similar, you know, very rigid repetitive structure and then the variations within that structure carry enormous amounts of information and that's a sense of connectivity and individuation and literally our individuality at a genetic level is inscribed in the DNA by the fact that it's not just ATCG repeated endlessly there's variations and those variants, to use the Loki term are what give the uh, define the individuality, and that like you think about like um, I wasn't talking with you about diversity, but somebody else that well yeah the 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 the, the president the office of the president you know right now we've des- originally it was designed for diversity the two most popular people even with strongly opposing views would hold the share an office, but there was so much backstabbing and confusion that they realized that was not really sustainable and so they chose to have a more cohesive environment but you know imagine you know it would be amazing if we had said you know we have a president whose job is to lead the country but what if we also made a second place the anti-president and gave him a platform where he could like hang out and go to all the same meetings and talk to everybody he just had no power whatsoever a shadow president if you will like that would be amazing because the then anti-president yeah because then it's not very American, bro. Why? Actually, it's very American. Okay. <laughs> There's right. nothing more American than being against the rest of America. <laughs> it's like a, like the most uh, like the best. various philosophers are those who criticize everything else that's been done in philosophy as total crap. <laughs> What's his name? Di- was it Diogenes? Diogenes, probably the cynic. Yeah, the guy who like like sat in a barrel, shit on the street. Was that him? Probably. He he was like skeptic, not cynic. Yeah, skeptic. He would like question people. He would. He well, Socrates would, would go around questioning people until they killed him. Who was the guy who like? Oh, it might have been Socrates. Who like asked, asked people, like taught people things by questioning them. So this is an interesting question, right? Socratic ignorance, right? So the idea is that 
Socrates claimed um, that he, he received, he talked to the Oracle of Delphi, the sacred monster, and Delphi, and it said that... Wait, that's in Sonic. Sonic, um, the, you know the Sonic TV show that we watched like 10 years ago? Mm-hmm. It's in that one. The, the sacred monster? The, the, the Oracle, Oracle of Delphi. Delphi. Right. There's an Oracle. The Oracle of Delphi was a real historical place, a temple in the Greek island somewhere, uh, Temple of Apollo, and people would go there with a question and they would get a cryptic answer. Uh. Uh, nomic, I think that's probably the word. Um, and uh, his answer was, there's no one wiser than you. And Socrates, in what some consider mockumility, said, you know, this is odd because I don't think of myself as very wise. But I realized, oh yeah, that's why I'm wiser than the rest is because I know I don't know. And so, this is called Socratic ignorance. And see, we just go on quest when you find someone who thinks that they know something, like, oh, come on, justice is obvious. Really? Well, tell me. And then he'll proceed to shred them by asking them questions that reveal that everything they think is actually contradictory. And he thinks this is great fun. <laughs> His <laughs> interlocutors, like not so much. And then he gets accused of corrupting the youth and so forth. And so some people say, well, he's really just trying to teach them. I actually think that he's sincere and serious. It's like, you know, he's having fun. I mean, I think he's both sincere and a little bit passive aggressive because that is exactly what I do a lot is when I hear someone saying something that seems really off to me, I'll say, hmm, that's odd. I don't understand. And the thing I like about that though, it's what I call a bias neutral strategy. It means if I'm right, then I will just uncover that by probing at them. If I'm wrong, I just use no. I, I just I learn right. So if, if it's so, what I do it that way. If it's I can either do it ironically in order to teach them, or do it sincerely in order for them to teach me. And either way, I win. As opposed to, like my friend Robbie, who's uh, against mass. You know, he, he, some of his pillars of identity were threatened by a lot of the stuffs happening in COVID from the medical establishment. He's like, well, I'm pretty sure that I'm not COVID, and that Max won't help. It's like, okay, that could be true, but what if you're wrong? So if you go to an event and you are infectious and a mask would have prevented it and somebody dies because of it, you know, that's a bad outcome. You know, maybe it's a low probability or unlikely outcome. Maybe it's not worth the risk, but it's still a bad outcome. And it's like the strategy you're pursuing, uh, I have to have this conversation with him at the right context, but we're having lots of really good conversations. And this issue of dissociation was actually what I was thinking about in context with him. But the interesting thing for me, so the study of generativity is what I felt like Tony Stark should have said to Ultron, right? Is And I said, to demonstrate by your actions how to maximize human generativity in a way that is anti-fragile to both internal and external threats. Like if Tony had just said that to Ultron, Ultron would have gone and become a monk somewhere and, uh, you know, travel the world spreading enlightenment, which would have been a much more boring movie. Um, Yo, it's literally Zenyatta from Overwatch, no way. Well, it's basically the Gandhi movie, actually, which means he probably would have been killed by somebody. But he's Gandhi a robot in that one. No, Zenyatta's basically a Gandhi robot? He, pretty much. Wow. Is there a... Well, what? actually, he was part of, like, an order of monks, but the Gandhi, like, the Gandhi robot died. Kind of. He didn't really lead a revolution, but, like, he was, like, he was, like, the top uh, robot monk. So, where did the robot monks, monks come from? Um, they were made by... Torbjorn's, I don't know, machines or that, I guess. 
they were like constructed like other omnics. Were they made out of real monks? But from by real monks? No, no, I, I don't think so. Um, but they just like chose to be monks. Oh, so there were like, the whole thing is like there were a race of warrior virus. robots who decided to forswear violence. Yeah, it's weird because like it's, they're like embrace the iris, but I don't even think Zenyatta has an iris. What is an iris? He just has two sli an iris thing what? around here. Oh. Why are they trying to embrace the iris? I don't know. It's just some vague spiritual thing. Something around purifying the eye, perhaps? I don't know, dude. I don't think it means anything. It's just funny because he has, like, one of my favorite skins on him. He has, like, a Cthulhu skin. And it's just, like, a bunch of Cthulhu eyeballs. So, wait, a robot monk who masquerades as Cthulhu. No, 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 no. He has a skin in the game. It's just well, yeah, disguised lore. as Cthulhu. It's disconnected from the lore. Okay. Yeah. Or it's ironic to make a. It's just because he's. Because Cthulhu's like the embodiment. It's just because he's a monk and he has like steel balls circling around him as his weapons. But yes. then he has arms and like his ultimate is like in tentacles instead. Right, I'm sorry. The, the, the phrase monk with steel balls just threw me for a moment. <laughs> and those are his weapons. <laughs> He flings really, his steel I really, balls. I'm really time. tempted to make that the episode title. Steel balls. Monks with steel balls. Monks with steel balls. Which is kind of what we're talking about with Ultron, right? Is um No. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, this is what I'm talking about with Ultron. Okay. Is that like Does he have steel balls? Well the idea being Could he reproduce? Did he have balls? Um he tried to reproduce. He did not literally have steel balls. Um, I don't think that he made him fully functional on the order of data from Star Trek The Next Generation. Lame. But the idea would be that like, he actually would be this sort of superhuman Gandhi-type figure. With steel balls. Yeah, well, at least metaphorically, <laughs> right? In that he would be um, virtually, he would be pretty close to unkillable, uh, which is an interesting thing, because the problem with being a monk, being a Socrates, being a Gandhi, is that uh, you uh, are a walking amygdala hijack, right? Because you are threatening the identity. very concepts of identity that people have, which are based on either victimhood or, or strength or whatever. And so to be able to do that in a way where... Um, now, it's an interesting question, actually. Is it necessary for monkhood to be vulnerable, right? Like Christ and... I mean, I don't know much about monks, but it makes sense. Right, and so is is the fact that he's invulnerable, does that undercut the authenticity of his message? But, you know, he could figure that out. The, the, the interesting thing for me that got to the amygdala part was that Tony Stark, I realized that, ah, this was Tony Stark's problem, as he, all he wanted was peace. And that's what he said. But that's not really all he wanted. But that was kind of his amygdala hijack, right? His dad's identity was built around stopping Hitler in World War II. That's how he became a hero. And that was the great and noble thing that made him emotionally un unavailable to his son, which caused Tony Stark to have all these neuroses and women issues and this and that. And he never really made peace with that. In fact, I would argue that Tony was obsessed over external peace because he lacked internal peace because of his own amygdala hijack. And so that's why Tony Stark couldn't give Ultron a uh, generative command. He just had to give him a negative command. is like, just make peace. And then, um, so in some sense, ah, Ultron is a projection of Tony Stark's amygdala. And he got hijacked the same way Tony Stark's amygdala was hijacked. 
and this is actually not just a theoretical question. People are literally obsessing over rogue AI. Uh, the idea that well, if we create a robot, we could tell it something, and then it's going to like turn the whole world into paper clips. And in some ways, it's 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 uh, you can make a case it's silly, and then my friend Tim O'Reilly would make the case that well, actually, that's kind of what we've done with Wall Street, is we set the metric of GDP over everything else, and we've turned Wall Street loose to do that, and that's created all these horrible problems, and that's basically a, a version of rogue AI. And it's really not about rogue AI, it's about having the wrong metric and, and hyper-optimizing on the wrong thing. And it is interesting to see if you could define generativity in a uh, robust way that you could actually teach a machine to optimize for it. And you, know, you know what robust is if you switch one of the letters? Robots. Turbos. Robots. Robots, yes, with one T though. Right, robots with one T is robots. A, robots with one T would be a good thing, right? Because a, a, a robot does not know how to do doubt and say, but you know, the, by definition, the whole point of having a machine that's automated and predictable is that it always does the same thing. It never gets bored. It never uh, decides to just stop doing what it was told to do, uh, like the uh, brooms in Mickey's Sorcerer's Apprentice. Well. Are you done? I think we're done with that part. I don't like with your food. Oh.